Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. If you've been here for a while, uh, you know that this show has evolved. It's gone through a couple of different uh, iterations. When I first launched in May of 2020, the main focus was on the entertainment and media business and dealing with sort of the immediate effects of COVID and just what that meant for our business when we couldn't gather and we couldn't be together and we couldn't do the things that uh, we're used to doing. How did that change our approach to things? How did that change creativity and just all of it? Then about a month into the show, uh, George Floyd was killed. Black Lives Matter protests started happening. Then the election, right? The ramp up to the election and all of that craziness, the insurrection. And then things got good for a while, or so it seemed. You know, Biden was in. The pandemic had kind of slowed for a while. I stopped doing new shows last summer. And then there was something inside of me that just said, it's time to come back. And so I started this show again, I don't know, two, three months ago now. I've been doing a show every other week. And I guess this is the moment that we're back for, right? It was easy to think that administrations had changed in the White House and that things could be back to normal and we could kind of go live our lives. But clearly, that is not the case. It's a good reminder that administrations are like throwing a pebble into a pond and they have these ripple effects, right? The policies that they put in place when they're in office and the judges that they appoint to the Supreme Court, certainly, but district courts and federal courts all across the country. We're seeing that right now with uh, the Supreme Court leak this week and uh, Justice Alito's apparent majority decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. It is a uh, confusing time. It is a scary time. And I can't help but look at this as the beginning of something uh, very, very troubling. This has been a goal of many on the right for a long time, but I I was always optimistic that people would realize that abortion was a, a hot-button issue. It was an issue that would turn out voters. It would keep people angry. But I thought Republicans needed that anger to continue to, to win elections. And so I thought it would be a good boogeyman for them, but not something that they would actually take action on. And I read some analysis, somebody tweeted that that is kind of what's happening, that the politicians that rely on being reelected did not take action, but instead put in sympathetic justices on the Supreme Court and let this change happen through judicial rule, which makes sense. Supreme Court justices are there for life. They don't need to win an election. They can do unpopular things. But erasing 50 years of precedent makes you wonder what's next. Gay marriage, interracial marriage. Like, I, I could just, I could see this getting very, very ugly. And I'm worried that those on the left do not have the strength to fight this or the will to fight this. I saw Elizabeth Warren protesting at the Supreme Court and uh, justifiably very upset and angry but I haven't seen that from a lot of other people on the left. You have a very narrow majority in the Senate, you have a majority in the House, and you have the White House. How do you not get progressive legislation passed? 
How do you not take this opportunity to try to undo what's been done and to try to move us in a direction where polls at least say on abortion, 70% of the country wants to be? If 70% of the country doesn't want to overturn Roe, why are we allowing a small minority to do this through judicial action? Yeah, I'm just processing it all. I don't have a lot to say beyond what I just said, I guess. And uh, just trying to stay attentive, trying to figure out how I can get involved. And for me, realizing it's my place to listen in this moment, to be supportive in this moment, and to, to help fight in this moment. Jennifer Reitman is my guest on the podcast today. She's the founder and publisher of Dame Magazine. Dame has done phenomenal work, and uh, they've been retweeting a lot of their articles this week uh, that deal with abortion, that deal with Roe, that deal with women's reproductive rights and and the reproductive rights of everybody. But obviously, it's not their only issue. Um, It is an online magazine that is owned by women. It is an online magazine that is run by women and edited and primarily written by women. But it's one that has great universal appeal, too. I first discovered them through Twitter. Some of their articles would show up on my timeline. And uh, I read more and more of them. I've started citing some of their work in my newsletter. And my newsletter is actually uh, how Jen and I connected. So I'm thrilled with the work that Jen and her team are doing and was very excited to talk to her. We don't talk about abortion much in this interview. We actually recorded this on Monday about an hour or so before the Alito leak happened. So if that feels absent from the conversation, that is why. But in some ways, this conversation is even more relevant without that sort of reactive piece to it. We talk in very general terms about activism, about standing up, about the freedom of the press, First Amendment. A lot of those conversations happen in the abstract here, but with the kind of backdrop of what's happening in the Supreme Court now, it all feels newly relevant. So I hope you get something out of this interview. I really enjoyed it. That's coming up in just a minute here. Jennifer Reitman from Day Magazine. Before we get there, too, I just wanted to let you all know an update on my COVID situation and uh, just share my story. I mentioned in my last show with Wally Ferriston that my whole family had tested positive for COVID. We fortunately were all vaccinated and had a pretty mild case, all things considered. But for me, it's been a cold that has dragged on now. I am still not fully over the symptoms. It's been more than two weeks since I was diagnosed. And I noticed in this episode uh, some some brain fog stuff that was kind of new. This was the first interview that I've recorded where I just didn't really feel on my game. I didn't feel like I was thinking at the pace I usually do or asking questions at the pace I usually do. I do edit this show, so you you may or may not pick up on any of that, but it's just it's something personal that I noticed that uh, I, I like to be a little more on top of it when I'm asking questions. And I just, I felt a fog. I would listen to Jen, I would have some ideas, and then I would go to say it and just nothing would come out of my mouth. So that was weird. Uh, I'm able to edit around it, but I'm just, I'm noticing that kind of in my daily life now that as the cold symptoms are going away... There is just a bit of uh, sluggishness to my brain right now. And maybe it's not COVID-related. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. But uh, it feels COVID-related because just the timing of it has been very weird. So just a reminder of the importance of masking still, of keeping your distance still. I continue to wear a mask when I go out. I'm still 
going to take the vaccine when I'm eligible for my next booster. And I just think we need to still be acting like there's a deadly virus out there because there is. I don't know. It's not to be preachy or anything. It's just I'm sharing my experience. I know it's still out there. It has affected me for two or three weeks now. So that's where my head is. Stay safe. Keep your masks on. Stand up for what you believe in. That's what today's interview is about. All right, here it is, my conversation with Dame Magazine founder and publisher, Jennifer Reitman. I want to start with just kind of the big picture question of the last two years. Like, what have they been like for you? The last two years have been um, bananas, as it has been for everybody. March of 2020 was the strangest month of my entire life, I think, because it felt like living through a zombie movie, basically. I went to the online journalism conference out here in LA with a good friend of mine. And a week later, we were both incredibly sick, right? So like by March 13th, we were both really sick. Yeah. And then the world sort of stopped. Everything stopped and everything changed. And as a person who owns a business, it went from trudging along and we do this to, oh God, are we going to survive this? Yeah, Lots of pivoting, lots of slowing down uh, to try to sort of pace ourselves from a, you know, from a financial standpoint and, and, and make it through, especially in media. Right. It's been a strange couple of years. What's interesting for me from sort of a business standpoint or, a, you know, work standpoint is we've always been a distributed company. Right. We've always all worked from home. So in terms of adjusting to this, like, you know, new thing of, oh my God, now we've got to set people up in their houses. We were already doing that for years. And so on an upending in the beginning and over the past couple of years, we've had to make no adjustment in that regard, which, you know, all things considered, at least we didn't have to worry about that. Right. right? I, I sort of think about it in this way. It's been a weird two years plus the four years before it. Right. Right. It's sort of like, well, of course this would happen at the very end of of this guy's, you know, being in office. Why not just put a pandemic on top of the most nutty thing we've ever seen in government? And so it's it's strange because it at times feels really unrelenting. But now it starts to feel, for me at least, it's felt like, okay, the big shift has ended and this is just kind of how it is now. It's just sort of bonkers all the time. Yeah. So it's been um, an interesting, weird, sad, emotional, uh, not for me personally, I've been really fortunate. Uh, No one in my family, I didn't lose anybody, but watching so much grief And not just COVID grief, but grief for the way that we've lost sort of empathy for one another, the way that, you know, people talk to each other. There's so much profound grief out there. So I think the past two years has been, in one word, complex. Yeah. It's interesting, kind of, I I guess, like, I understand temporally that the pandemic happened at the end of the Trump years, but I guess I never really thought of it as like the logical conclusion, the way you just laid it out. And just sort of, as you say, sort of that unrelentingness that like, 
And then to, to have George Floyd coming right in the beginning of the pandemic, too, like it's been a strange time to sort of have a lot of conversations that we've needed to have and also just kind of, I guess, reset as a culture. And we're figuring that out now. And I guess that's kind of part of what you're saying, right? And that's part of what I'm feeling in this time is like, we're trying to figure out what the future looks like together. It, it feels like inflection. Yeah. I, I think we use that term really loosely all the time. It's an inflection point. Right. But this really does feel like an inflection point in the direst of sense in some ways, right? right? One from a climate standpoint, yeah. from a you know a, a, a progress standpoint generally in terms of, of the how we treat uh, humanity, right? How we treat each other, the conversations we're having about LGBTQ issues, you know, the egregious violence against black people in this country. Um, disability rights, healthcare rights. Look, the sad thing is like women's rights is almost shunted in some ways, right? right? Because that fight has been going on for so long. But, you know, these these invigorated, hopefully, conversations around reproductive rights. It's amazing that these things have all sort of been forced to uh, the surface in a time when I feel like we're the least physically able to confront them in yeah. so many ways, right. right? We're, people are very tired, really tired. They're just uh, exhausted for any host of reasons. Sure. But we also have some physical barriers out there to getting into the streets the way that we used to. I think, you know, in part, COVID has made a certain large portion of our country afraid to gather in large groups. And then I think there's a, unfortunately, there is a fear of a rising sort of authoritarian police force who is fairly unconstrained. So I I think it's interesting that we're having, as you said, these really, really sort of existential conversations at a time when people are, they're just tired. People are really tired. They're burnt out. Yeah. Well, I'm curious too, just as somebody in the media, like, I feel like the media has contributed in some ways to sort of that divide. And just we all have our own different information buckets now and our own silos. And like, how do we figure out how to come back together and sort of address, like, if there's a group of people that are standing up for LGBTQ rights, and then there's a different group of people that are saying, you know, we need to clamp that down as much as possible. How do you ever find a common ground in that? You you don't, right? I I mean, I, 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 and that's not to be, Um, I'm not being pessimistic. I'm being pragmatic about it, really. One, I wholeheartedly agree with you about the media, wholeheart, even though I'm a member, right? We certainly, you know, it's self-sorting hats now. And the media certainly has created echo chambers where we now seek out what most reflects what we believe. I don't think that all media does that. I think we have a particular network uh, that, that is very good at, inflaming these things. I mean, you know, again, I don't, I'm not trying to be pessimistic about bringing people back into those conversations. I think there is a group that is calcified and they're never, ever, ever going to have an open dialogue about that. It isn't just LBGTQ rights. It isn't just um, civil rights. It isn't just reproductive rights, but it is about basic freedom to be, to be a, a person, right? about agency and autonomy and not under the thumb of government. Right. But there's a there's a portion of our electorate that 
you know, is delighted that we're going in the wrong direction. You know, look, I'm sorry, it's predominantly white men who feel their power and control slipping away because we are becoming a more progressive country. We are becoming a more diverse nation. And it's a death rattle, I hope, in, you know, in some ways of, of clinging to, you know, coming home from work with a briefcase and wifey brings you a cocktail and a pretty dress. Yeah. And um, everybody's in the closet and you can say whatever you want and you can be as abusive as you want. And too bad. I do, from an optimistic standpoint, I do really think there are more of us, more people who believe in uh, individual liberty, which is the ironic because that used to be the whole conservative message, right? It was right. all about individual freedoms. I do think that there are more of us who believe in personal agency and freedom and, and that government shouldn't make decisions for us as individuals and that it is about you know, doing right by the, by the most of us as opposed to the least of us. But as I said earlier, people are tired and fatigued and politics has become so grotesque in many ways, right? It really is just a battle of who wins the war on Twitter for the latest quip or own the libs. And those substantive conversations really get lost, I think, a lot. You know, I'll use the Elon Musk thing as an example. So all of the conversation was centered around like, you know, and, and it's an important conversation. What does he do? You know, what happens if he owns it? But the bigger conversation for me is really like, we need to democratize information in a much better way yeah. to social media owners. And for all intents and purposes, five billionaires owning the rest of our information networks is not healthy for democracy. Right. right? And so in the hubbub of sort of like news that has to turn around quickly and that headline and that click, I think we, we've lost a lot of the new, and we try to do that differently, but, but I think we lose the nuance and the context and the why it matters and we're sort of just so focused on the what all of the time. So, yeah, I agree with you on the media. I don't know how you get a certain portion, but I have hope about it all. I think we have incredible young generations who are engaged. Yeah. No, and you see that on a number of issues. And I feel like, though, part of the challenge is just, as you say, like, you know, winning the war on Twitter every day and things like our attention uh, at least for someone like me who's empathetic and cares and wants to be involved. But I also don't have, you know, I, I'm I'm a straight white man. Like I don't have a particular uh, personal issue to fight on. Yeah. So then it's like, okay, you know, it's abortion one day. And I say, oh, okay. Like that gets my attention. But then the next day there's an LGBT issue. The next day there's a, is a black issue, an indigenous issue, you know, whatever. Like, mm-hmm just trying to move forward on any of that when it's just, it's this tidal wave of everything to you know, like on the one hand, we need to address all these things, but yeah. on the other, I feel that my focus is in 10 different places at any point too. I would give you advice on that. If someone came to me and said, what should I focus on? Because it feels like everything. My advice is always pick one thing that matters yeah. to you. You can't fix all of it. There's, yeah. it's, it's impossible. And I think, unfortunately, that's you're speaking to why there is 
compassion fatigue in many ways for people who don't necessarily have skin in the game. It seems like it's all insurmountable, right? Because there's so much of it over and over again. It's climate, it's economic justice, it's it's, uh, climate justice is a huge thing. I always just say to people, pick the one thing that you think you can one, make a difference in, right? And the thing that you think you, you know, passionately want to help change, you're never going to be able to solve all of it. I also say, and this speaks to your question earlier, I like when people pick the thing where they have family members who can be sort of brought along for the cause, who may be adjacent enough to the issue Maybe it's, you know, I keep using climate as an example, but maybe it's somebody who lives in a city or a town where, you know, fracking is poisoning the water. That's a real world issue that somebody can understand who may not vote to do the things that would actually solve the problem. But if you can engage somebody at that level, I think, you know, that tends to help. So, So that would be my other thing. It's interesting. I was thinking about your newsletter the other day about nostalgia. Yeah. Um, I'm Gen X, decidedly middle-aged woman in my 50s. And when we live in a climate like this, a time like this, where it is so fraught, nostalgia becomes a really important thing because I think we often think that things are really horrible right now. And don't get me wrong, they are some kind of horrible. Yeah. But if you spend any time looking back at history, you can find some moments I mean, look, the original sin, right? Slaughtering of Native Americans, Spanish flu. I mean, you can find moments where, my God, it was pretty bad, right? Women didn't have the right to vote. Black people didn't have the right. I mean, there are lots of things. And I I think nostalgia can be a powerful tool in some ways where it's weaponized on one side, right? Their nostalgia is for all the terrible, the things that we don't technically believe in. But I think also reminding people that progress gets made, it really does. And giving people uh, some perspective also gives them hope. Yeah. And hope is what fuels action, right. right? If you feel like it's all too much and you feel like it's all too overwhelming, then it's stasis. You feel paralyzed. Yeah. So, so I, when I was reading your, your newsletter, I was really thinking, because I am super nostalgic. I loved, you know, like I love 80s music sure. and I, I love my you know, I love things from my youth, but I also was thinking about, wow, you know, nostalgia could be used for more. Yeah. Well, it's funny because that's something I feel like I've had to to reckon with too and, and just, you know, understand in my own life. Like I'm, I'm a millennial, older side of millennials, but I was born in the 80s in the Reagan administration when there was a lot of that kind of father knows best, you know, looking back on kind of the programming of the 50s, these were the good old days was kind of the message of my childhood. And it's easy to sort of live with that and think of the simplicity of that and not recognize everything else that was happening. You know, that like the media picture and the entertainment industry picture were presented, presented one side of it, right? But then... there's the whole civil rights struggle happening. There's Vietnam, there's, you know, there's millions of atrocities and it's easy to just look back on that and say, Oh, those were simpler times. And boy, wouldn't that be nice to go back to that? But there's a lot of people that wouldn't want to go back to that either. There's plenty. I mean, that's sort of one of the the mistakes. And I found myself falling into this mistake as well. You kind of go, God, I just want things to go back to normal. Yeah. Because if, if you are a white person, which I am, 
and you are in your 50s, there were all these moments where things were like pretty good for yeah. me, right? I mean, granted, I lived through you know, recessions and gas, I sat in gas lines, but this moment, you know, can feel so aberrant. But the reality is you have to remind yourself that normal was not great, yeah. right? For so, so many people, normal was terrible. Yeah. And so it really is not about ever going back. And it, and it simply is about how do you continually move forward and make, and make progress? I mean, that's a lot of what we try to do at Dame to sort of give context to things as much as possible. So people can not just see, okay, this is why this has happened or this happened in the past, but also here's, here's the potential outcome of this. Yeah. You know, here's what could happen because it is so important. I think, in media in particular, to not, I, I was having a conversation the other day about failures of imagination. Mm. And I think oftentimes the media has a tremendous failure of imagination. They can't possibly think 10 steps forward. Yeah. And the reality is if we've learned anything over the past, you know, since 2015, as bad as it is, it can be worse. Yeah. It, like imagine it worse because really it's sort of gotten worse. Yeah. You know, and where does that that failure of imagination like is that just the pace that most journalists are working at is that their own perspective their own bias like I think it's everything yeah. I think it's all of those things right I think you have um and look I'm no expert I just have a happen to have a media company but I didn't come up in um I think it's really important for people to know that I didn't go to New York and work at the New York Times or the Washington Post or Boston Globe or any legacy corporate media. I never worked at a women's magazine. I just, I worked at a little independent publishing company and woke up one day and thought, oh, I'd like to do this too. Yeah. I have family history in the business. My dad worked in advertising and publishing. So I had some exposure, but I didn't have any hands on. So I don't have a great answer for that because I didn't come up the ranks, the yeah. traditional ranks. But I think it's everything that you mentioned, all of it together. I think it is with traditional media, so papers of record, I think there is this very set imagined way of this is how we do things, right? And that's why you see the, the criticisms of both sideism, right? Mm-hmm. And you think flat language. I think bias is real. I mean, journalists are people. And you're always, I don't care how objective you are, you're always going to bring some personal view into it. Otherwise, it would be AI, right? There's just no way you can turn that off. Maybe, I don't know, stop site gets replaced on Maine and Culver. Like, that's the only story I can think of, right? But most stories, the contemporary media that we read today is going to have in the language you use and the framing, whether it's, you know, objective or subjective, I think you're always going to have some influence from your own personal lens on the world and experience. I also think that the industry rewards shitty reporting, frankly. The business is not built for this minute. It just isn't built for this moment in time. You look back on Nixon and Watergate and you think, well, those guys, of course it was that moment because you could, that's all people consumed, right? Was the daily paper. So you could take your time reporting out a story months, not to say that doesn't happen still, but some of our most important issues get buried and lost 
in the drive for immediate clicks, the competition. So, so I think to answer your question, I think it's everything. I think it's all of it. I'm curious, just thinking about your point of journalists or people and, you know, there, there is a natural bias. I feel like that is something that, that you lean into at Dame and really let, let your columnists be who they are and, and bring their full self into their writing and that feels like a deliberate choice. I'm curious sort of why, why you went in that direction. Uh, it's a very deliberate choice. One of the things that I thought was most missing from the media landscape, because we're not a hard news outlet, right? Yeah. I'm not, we don't have a Hill reporter chasing down, you know, Amy Klobuchar. Yeah. We have the latitude to really explore topics that are people's lived experiences, right? It's important for for me and for my team, I think, to elevate writers who often their lived experience isn't really told by them, but mm. rather reported by looking in. Yeah. And so it's, it is about writing that comes from a place of understanding the issue firsthand. So whether that be disability rights, whether that be a legal column always written by a lawyer, um, whether that be LGBTQ issues, those are written by people who live in that space. Yeah. And they happen to also be journalists or reporters or writers. It makes for, I think, more facile understanding of the issue at hand when you have the opposite of parachute reporting when it comes to an experience. Yeah. You know, look, we have the latitude to do things at Dame that a lot of outlets don't have, right? Yeah. Because you know, you, I think you've guessed this, right? We don't have investors. We don't have advertising. So we kind of make up the rules as we go um, a little bit, right? I mean, there, there are general rules that we adhere to, right? Fact-checking our stories and things like that. But, but in terms of, as you say, leaning into uh, what could be construed as a bias, it's, not, it's, it's just that lived experience to better help the reader understand impact, yeah. I think. Yeah. Take me back to why you started Dame in the first place. Like, what did you feel like was missing in the media landscape? And why did you feel like, feel like you and your team could fill that void? I had been working at an independent publishing company in, here in LA um, that had a music title and a young men's lifestyle title, like sort of akin to Maxim or okay. FHM, yep. Aladdin book, we called them at the time. And I had always been a truly voracious reader of magazines. I love, I literally love, my parents used to get mad at me because I spend so much money on magazines. Like I was the gal who, you know, stacks and stacks. And I'd always loved the industry and women's publishing at the time. So this would be in the like late nineties. I didn't start in the late nineties, but in the late nineties, I started to think about what was missing. Right. Yeah. And there were a few magazines like Mirabella was a smart women's magazine. Um, there used to be one called uh, New York woman, but there was nothing that was kind of like Esquire for women. Yeah. Right. Kind of fun, irreverent, great long form journalism, some fast paced stuff some lifestyle. And I thought, God, this is weird. There's like no Esquire of women. It's all beauty tips and fashion tips. Right. Where's the hardcore long form report? So fast forward, I was working in this publishing company that a men's magazine. I was like, ugh, again, with the men's magazine. And so I just thought, all right, I would be interesting if I tried to do Dame, like basically Esquire for women. Yeah. Where we had this mix of, of lifestyle and, and really intense long form. 
And so I, you know, put it on the back burner as an idea for years and years and years. And then in 2008, I decided to launch it. It was going to be a magazine print. Yeah. And so I you know, t- took all my savings and took out a loan and I put up a website for Day Magazine. And then the market crashed yeah. in 2009. Uh, so that was super fun. And I had to uh, close it. And basically, we came back in, in what you see now in 2014. It just I went back to consulting, just saved money for years. And then finally felt the moment was right. But, you know, I don't think I thought I could do it any better than else. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't, um, I wasn't naive. I'd been consulting in media for years. I wasn't naive about how hard it was going to be. I just was determined to provide an alternative for, you know, I always say like nothing out there reflected the conversations that I was having with my friends. Right. These kind of deeply political policy-based, but also funny, but also, you know, quick and also with culture. And so hence, Jam was born. Uh, I, I definitely didn't think I could do it better than anybody else. <laughs> Not a, I still don't. But I have a, a you know put together a great team and fortunate to have an incredible team, you know team of people. But yeah, no, I I didn't go into it going I'm going to beat everybody. I'm right, going to beat. Right. But you saw you saw a need. There was there was. A I saw a need. Yeah. It was for me. I mean, I, I really put Dame up because I knew what I wanted to read right. and I knew what my friends wanted to read. I didn't want to do a blog because I'm not a writer, yep. decidedly not a writer or a journalist, but it, it was more like, I'm just going to throw a ball up in the air and take a swing and see what happens. And, you know, for media, not the smartest, but you do it that way. Yeah. If you love it. I loved it. That's why. But enough to, to put up your own savings too. And to like, really, I mean, that's, that's really putting yourself on the line. I sold a house to keep us in business. Wow. No, yeah, no, no, no. I, I sold a house to literally, <laughs> no, that when you are, I mean, game is my life, right? My passion for that site and what we do and having a small corner of the media landscape to help make people you know, get excited about the world they live in and make change. It's worth it. it yeah. It's it's worth it. That's awesome. I'm curious too, just sourcing talent and figuring out sort of who your writers are going to be and what that perspective is going to be. Like, how do you go about finding new writers and, and who to bring into your fold? Um, it's a mix of things, right? We've been around for a long time. So we do get a lot of pitches, of course. Yep. My editors, you know, their network from years and years. Sometimes, honestly, I find them on Twitter. Sometimes they've never written a thing. (laughs) And they just, one of our columnists, uh, Caitlin Beard in particular, but this has happened a few times, I will see a thread and I'll go, God, you're a really good thinker. And the way you're writing this, you also probably would be a good writer. Why don't I reach out? So sometimes I cold reach out to people. Sometimes it's a writer that we like and we, you know, we'll have a story that we come up with in house and, and we'll sort of go through our network or we'll, you know, look for clips. It's, it's a mix of things though. Yeah. I'm curious too, when you wanted to launch this, it was a print magazine. Now it's, an I didn't ever launch print. I wanted to launch. Print. Okay. But the idea was, was print and now it's, yeah. now it's an online outlet. Yeah. I, I guess when you, when you think about a print magazine, there's sort of a main feature story and then there's other things that kind of fill it. You know, you're creating almost like a, like a musician does an album 
versus yeah. like thinking of like singles, like, you know, listening to Spotify or something like right, right. How, having a digital outlet. How does that change just the way that you think about the mix of stories that you tell and, you know, when things get released and all that? Like, does it yeah. start, does your background in traditional publishing come into that or it does it does so we we actually are much slower like we practice slow journalism basically where we're planning you know right now we're planning june and july yeah so we're we're thinking about what we're publishing you know at least a month in advance we don't do a lot of reactive stuff we're actually going to launch some reactive stuff soon but but we don't do a lot of like oh quick hit this happened um because we really want to give it time to you know, we want people to report and yeah. to research. I mean, look, the print was fun because it was like a cover story, right? And, and and you got to really plan out the magazine. This is a little, the pressures I think of digital are much harder in many ways in that, especially for a small site like Dame, where budget is a question all the time, it's sure. an issue. And I have to pick and choose what we will talk to. Just like you were saying earlier about issues, I have to you know, be judicious with our, with our monthly budget. And sometimes that means saying no to a piece that I really, really want to publish, yeah. but we just can't do it. But I will say that my background in print definitely sort of informs the way that we approach our planning and our editorial. Interesting. Because I feel like there is a difference to like in the digital world, so much of it is driven or, or could be driven by what could go viral and what could get shared on Twitter easily. It, like sometimes it's harder to have those kind of B and C stories that you might have, yeah. you know, if you were just flipping through a magazine, like, yeah. do you, do you have to consider sort of what you think is going to, to drive views or like, how do you work with that? So I don't actually, I okay. should, right. <laughs> might be smarter. Yeah. Uh, I don't have any more houses to sell. We do, of course, look, we do consider whether or not, something would be inherently interesting, which sure. oftentimes will translate to virality or what is zeitgeisty at the moment. But I would say that 80% of our editorial is not decided on that way. Okay, And it is more that this is something that we think is important, that we think readers should know more about, or it's something that we have casually maybe seen somebody in the wild talking about that yeah. really is not part of the news cycle. So we're not chasing the news cycle in that way for virality and clicks. Yeah. Again, always nice when it happens. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> right? You know, it'd be great if all of our stories went crazy. And that's the downside to having limited budgets, right? You, you know, your podcast is about creatives and sure. is that there is an 80-20 right? 80% of the stuff is really nobody's going to care or see it. And 20% of the stuff is going to lift. And when you're a small outlet or frankly, any small business, whether you're making t-shirts, 20% of them are going to, you know, take off and sell through and 80% of them, yeah, you'll sell 20 of them, but they're not going to be as popular. Yeah. So making those choices is is tough and it's tough for anybody who owns a business. Yeah, no, totally. Um, in that selection process of figuring out sort of what, what lives and what dies, you mentioned budget that plays a factor in it. Most, all of your support, like how much it's mostly reader support, right? Like yeah. that's, yeah. that's your business model. 
Well, yes. I mean, it's not our revenue. It's Dame Magazine's business model okay. is to hopefully be 100% reader supported, but we're not at the moment. And so I have, um, I don't really call it a side hustle. I have like a sister company and it's a digital agency and we design and build websites for brands and clients. Oh, okay. So that part of the business, business the revenue uh, is what underpins uh, Dame Magazine's gotcha. activity. At the moment, we wouldn't, we don't have enough reader support to be able to survive on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that's kind of my question, I guess, is just with the kind of prolification of media and just, you know, everybody now has, has a subscription model of some kind and just figuring out how to, how to provide value to people and how to get them to, to click that support button. And just like, what have you found that works? Oh goodness. Um, honestly, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a it, look. If I knew, I'd be a billionaire sure. because I'd be telling everybody my, you know, team would be funded and and um and I'd be telling everyone else how to get their money. I, I think it's a mix of things. I can see a little bit of anecdotal info in when people donate but don't subscribe. Mm. Um, you know, the comment is "Thanks for the article. This was great," or "I read this piece." Membership is typically. I think people are clicking that button because they understand the importance of independent media in yeah. the landscape, that it, that media should not be dominated by only five outlets, basically, right? And three cable networks. I definitely think that some portion of our supporters, you know, believe that women's voices are important in the landscape and, and gosh, you know, Bitch Magazine just closed down and, yeah, right. you know, there's fewer and fewer women-led media outlets out there. Uh, my entire team is women, of course. Yeah. So I think some first a large contingent it's that. It's interesting. We have a lot of men who support us. Yeah. Um, a, a really high percentage, actually. Our readership, our male readership, is about it's just shy of forty percent. Wow. Which means we're doing something right, frankly. Um, in that these stories are universal. They're not just about women, right? The things that we publish are impact all of us. Right. And, um, and so we have a lot of men. So I think also, you know, maybe a little bit of a feel good thing. I'm supporting a women's media outlet, but I wish I knew honestly, because I would be able to triple our numbers if I could get a succinct answer on why do people play? Sure. No, that's fair. And I was curious too, just about sort of that, that male female mix, because, you know, I have found so many of the articles just really appealing and really speaking to me. It's just interesting, I guess, that as you say, these stories are universal, but there is a need for them to come from a woman too, right? Like, it, it, yeah. yeah, you can't just tell these stories to everybody without that point of view, right? Yeah, I think the, I mean, that's really the game difference, right? Yeah. For us, it is about publishing features and columns that while they do impact everybody, the language and the narrative and that point of view sort of needs to be expressly by a woman, right? Because the framing is important. There's a, I think there's one of the things that I feel, I always think that Dana is like a lot of what we do, there's an urgency to it a bit. Right. And I, and I feel like that's because as you, you know, again, you mentioned your white guy would really like, you're going to be okay. Yeah. You're going to be just fine. And so much of what's going on is, and it goes back to like this authenticity that we believe in about 
people writing from their lived experience, but there is a framing that's been absent, I think, in, in corporate media, right? Because it is so dominated by male bylines. I, I'm glad, I mean, it, I'm thrilled that it, that it resonates with you and that you don't feel like, you know, I think people have often said like, Jen, are you going to turn people off? I'm like, I don't think so. The people who need to read Dame are going to read Dame. The yeah. people who get sort of what's important about it are going to read it. And, if, you know, the ones who don't, won't. I can't make them. Yeah, right. Uh, kind of in closing, I'm thinking just about, you, you mentioned before my newsletter, and that's sort of how we had first connected. But this idea that, like, independent journalism can mean a lot of things now, that, like, anybody yeah. can open a Substack or, you know, a blog or whatever and literally write whatever they want. And that can get shared <laughs> across Twitter or across the internet. And because of sort of the framing of it, you know, it looks a lot like a, a regular article that you're reading too. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people will just, uh, th- they won't dig into it and say, okay, is this fact yeah. checked or, you know, where yeah. did this stat come from or whatever? Like that for me as a creator can be really liberating, but for a reader can be very daunting. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. What, what do you think of just sort of where we are, where anybody can publish anything? So if you believe in freedom of the press, I believe anybody can publish anything, right? As a consumer, on the other hand, right? As a publisher, have at it, right? Substack, have at it. Not going to name names. Lots of people publishing things that I don't agree with and that I think poison, poison the discourse. Except they have the right to publish anything. It's not on them. It's, um, It's on the distribution networks for those things, right? They are, if you are a purveyor of lies or a purveyor of things that um, will get people killed, you know, frankly, uh, there's a responsibility. What, what bothers me about it is that if I publish things that are lies, I'll get sued, yeah. right? So I carry lots and lots of insurance and we have lots and lots of fact-checking. So as a media outlet, I have a responsibility, right, from a business perspective and from a from a landscape perspective. So it bugs me about this. Your you know your question, like what do I think about it? We have a media literacy problem, yeah. not a freedom to publish, right? It's fine. I don't great. Have at it. You know, we had these conversations in the '90s when the internet was you know booming. Sure. Like oh god, this is going to kill journalism, and you know everybody's writing something, and it's all citizen journalism now. No, no, but also have at it, except we have failed each other when it comes to media literacy and the coupling of social media and the need for confirmation bias with the commodification of those two things is what I take on bridge. That's what bums me out about it. But I would never say like, you know, they shouldn't be able to publish, publish all you want. But if you are part of a network that starts with an S and ends with a K, for instance, and you have, you know, people lying, I I feel like there's a responsibility. I I just, this is my issue at large, right? With Facebook and a lot of things and, and Substack is if you are the mechanism of distribution, which is what Dame is, I am not, I don't write anything, right? I am a platform for other people's opinions and reporting. And then I put that stuff into the world. I am 
personally and professionally responsible for every single word that shows up on day. I think others should be too. Mm. Right. I think if you are distributing people's information, then you are inherently a media company, whether you want to think you are or not. Yeah. If you are putting that stuff out there, you are a media company. How do you, if, if part of the allure of it is, is that freedom to publish? Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you start bringing in the traditional media pieces, you talk about fact checking and, and different things like that yeah. though, from a creator side, don't you lose yeah. the appeal? Yeah, like it, it, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I totally agree yeah. with you too. And it, it's, it's the, it's the Elon Musk Twitter debate too, right? Yeah. Of just like, you know, who gets to say what? And yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, there's, I don't have the answer for it. I'm, I'm simply telling you what frustrates me about it. Of course. I mean, the allure of Substack or any other of those platforms is a vehicle to get to a lot of people very quickly um, some with financial incentives, some without, and unconstrained, right? right? So we there's lots of things that gets put out, you know, that leverages Substack as a vehicle that we would never publish. Right. Not and not because of like we don't agree with it or whatnot, but because just like I'm not, you know, <laughs> I don't want to get sued. Right. And and you know, or mislead people or lie to them or whatnot. The the onus shouldn't be on the creator. Yeah, like it's not the look. Go make a buck. I'm all for that. I want every writer out there, every creative out there, to make as much money as they possibly can. To me, it's on the corporation. There has to be. You have to be a good corporate citizen. And there's, you know, it's not on the creators. Yeah, it's not. But what would I say to a creator if suddenly these platforms woke up tomorrow and were like, yeah, we're doing fact checking and you're going to have to adhere to our editorial guidelines. I would say, go get a domain for 99 cents. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, and publish it yourself. Right. Yeah. You have every freedom to do that. Yeah. I, I think what I'm hearing in your bigger point too, is just that like you can call yourself whatever you want, but if you're acting a certain way and behaving a certain way and your business models a certain way, yeah. maybe you're not what you say you are. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, and look, it's a genius idea. I don't begrudge those guys. Right. Absolutely. Good for them. Yeah. I just find it, you know, I find it interesting that, that sites like Dame and any other site for that matter, we adhere to a certain uh, set of rules when it comes to information sure, and, uh, and you know, others don't and, and except they do basically the same thing we do. Yeah. You know, if I, even if we put out and we do put out newsletters, but even if suddenly Dame pivoted and we were a network of newsletters instead of columns and features, I would still literally apply the same absolute standards. I think, of course, yeah. I think their pushback to me would be, well, it's, it's not our brand. It's their brand. Right. So your brand is your brand. You're just using the tool. Yeah. Exactly. Right. I mean, that would be their pushback to me. Yeah. Right. Um, last question, just as we're heading into kind of the midterms and, you know, there's another chance to upend the world. You know, I'm just curious sort of what what you're all thinking about, you know, editorially and just sort of. You know, what are what are the interesting columns coming from Dame in the next couple of months here? So we have um, actually tomorrow uh, an issue comes out. Speaking of newsletters, we have a newsletter called The Stakes, which um, 
<laughs> is exactly what it sounds like, right? It's, it's we're covering in that newsletter um, everything that's at stake in the, in the midterms. Uh, so each edition of that, tomorrow is the First Amendment. It's funny. This is very um, connected, this conversation, yeah, yeah. because tomorrow's issue is about the First Amendment. And I read it, the, the, the editor and writer, Katie Joy Gray, sent it over uh, today, and my jaw dropped at the legislation that's, I, I didn't even know yeah. myself, all of this First Amendment legislation. So that is going to be most of our coverage in terms of, um, of the midterm races. We took it off the site so people uh, can really just sit with it. And have it in their inbox and really be fo- like taken it in. It's a long newsletter, has a lot of detail, but, but it does a good job of sort of spelling out every issue that we think is at risk. Um, so that is one of the main things. We're going to focus primarily on sort of systems, you know, whether that be policing, whether that be climate justice, whether that be economic justice, rather than we don't we've sort of moved away from beat reporting. Yeah. Other sites can do that better than we can. And I think we're better at sort of digging into very specific issues at hand. So that's how we'll be covering the races. Uh, and then the stakes will specifically be about what's on the ballot, for lack of a better term, um, and candidates and what have you. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a lot to take in, as we talked about at the beginning. You know, it's just, yeah. it's a lot to keep your attention on. But I feel like we all kind of breathed a sigh of relief when Biden came in. Mm-hmm. And it's it's easy to want to take your foot off the gas, and you know of course. We, we can't. <laughs> I guess nope, that's nope. where we are. No, we don't have time. But you know, again, like I said, I, if I can leave listeners with anything, progress is always possible, always. And the best way to stay motivated is to actually do something. Right, write postcards, um, host a fundraiser for your school council person. Uh, you know, the smallest thing. Uh, sign up to text bank, whatever it is, it, it, give $5 to somebody doing something actually can be very hopeful as opposed to just going, Oh, you know, nothing's going to change. Activism is one of the best ways to sort of feel better about the world you live in because you know that you're contributing in some way. All right. Jennifer Reitman there. It was a great conversation. Lots of amazing stuff there. Lots of great insight. And uh, I like that it ended on, a, on an optimistic note. We, of course, had no idea what would be coming an hour later after we hung up and uh, checked Twitter. But yeah, uh, we're in a different place now than we were three or four days ago when we talked. But such is the reality of life, I guess, right? Check out Dame Magazine. Their website is damemagazine, D-A-M-E magazine.com. Amazing reporting on there, amazing commentary. As you heard from Jen, a large portion of their support comes from readers. So if you're able to donate or become a member, please do so. There is no paywall to read their stuff, which I love. And uh, it's just, it's thoughtful and it's really interesting perspectives. And uh, it's voices that you don't often hear in the media. So I appreciate that a lot. And I appreciate Jen plugging my, uh, my newsletter in there. If you're not already signed up, go to heathrasella.com slash newsletter. Enter your email address there. The newsletter comes out once a week. It deals with everything from what's happening in entertainment and media relative to COVID to big picture ideas of just, you know, as we're redefining family and home and work and all these different things, what do we want the world to be? 
let's take this time to kind of redefine that and make it something that we're all proud of, a world that we all want to live in. I'm not saying it's not an uphill battle. I mean, clearly (laughs) this week shows that. And as I said at the top, I feel like it's going to get worse before it gets better. But hang in there. Let's keep fighting. I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Give me a follow over there. Let's connect and check out the newsletter, heathrosella.com slash newsletter. Subscribe to the podcast. I'll be back in two weeks. Stay safe, everybody.